down through verse number 42, and there were several things about the Lord Jesus Christ in that passage that were revealed to us. And uh, just very quickly, I want to remind you of that. Back in verse 25 of chapter 4, we saw, uh, we saw that Jesus, we saw that he was God and is God by his perfect timing. Look back in verse 25 of chapter 4. I'll read down through verse 27, the beginning part. You remember he was having the conversation with the woman at the well. In verse 25, the woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. So as a Samaritan woman, she even knew about the Jewish Messiah, and she knew what he was called, the Christ, the Christos. And uh, she goes on to say, when he, when he has come, he, and that's a very emphatic statement she made. She was talking to Jesus. She's talking to the Messiah. She doesn't re- recognize him yet as that. But she tells Jesus, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Look at verse 26. And Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am. And in essence, Jesus said there, I am. Now that, you might remember, going back to when Israel was delivered out of Egypt, God chose Moses, you remember, to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, and Moses didn't want to do it. He said, well, when they ask me, what am I supposed to tell them? What, who am I supposed to say has sent me? And God said, you tell them that I am has sent you. In other words, God said, you tell them that Jehovah, God, has sent you. And here in the New Testament, Jesus looks at the woman at the well, and he basically said, not just I am the Messiah, though that is certainly what he's saying, but he's also saying, I am, I, I am, I am Jehovah. I am God Almighty, is what he's saying to her in verse 26. Then in verse 27, the beginning part, it says, And upon this, this conversation, came his disciples. And we see God's perfect timing. We see that Jesus is the Christ. We also saw Jesus' priority. Look down to verse 31. Verse 31, still in chapter 4, in verse 31. I'll read down through verse 34. It says in verse 31, In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, they're pleading with him, saying, Master, eat, let's eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? You remember how they had gone into the village to buy some food. They came back with the food. They said, hey, let's eat. You know, let's break off this conversation here with this woman um, uh, let's just eat lunch. They were all hungry. And he says, I've got something that is more important than eating food. And uh, they said, well, has somebody else brought you something to eat? Verse 34, it says, Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Of course, the Bible tells us that, and Jesus said it, that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. That is why he came. And so this was his priority, his divine priority. We see his prophecy over in verse 35. Look there, verse 35. uh, He goes on to tell his disciples, Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, and here's the prophecy, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white, all ready to harvest. And uh, as he says here that, Don't say that there are four months till harvest comes. It tells us what time of the year this was taking place. It would have been uh, in what we would call springtime here, and and 
either the fields had only been planted, they, had, they were in seed, or maybe they had just begun to sprout. They weren't ready to harvest. The wheat field wasn't ready to harvest. But Jesus, looking down, I believe, to the city of Sychar, where this woman had run and was telling the people there, come meet a person who's told me everything about me. Uh, I've met the Messiah. Jesus looks down there, and, 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 and the disciples could have looked there too, and they could have seen the the headgear and the dress that would have been customary in the Eastern culture in those days, and uh, bustling around, and, and, and he knew what was going to happen. He was prophesying, you're about to see really a whole town believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, said. And he was teaching his disciples what his, what his fervent desire was, but also what their desire needed to be. And look under the fields, they're white already to harvest. We, we saw his prophecy, they were going to be saved. And then we see his proclamation. Look, look down to verse 40. It says, So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there in the city of Sychar two days. And many more believed because of his own word. I would have loved to have sat there in those days, for those two days with our Lord, and watched him teach the truth and listen to his words and watched the people respond in faith to what Jesus Christ was revealing to them, what he was speaking to them. We all could ask ourselves the question this morning, had we been there with the condition of our heart currently, would we, would we be in a position, would we have received the truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ taught uh, on those days? Remember, before he was in Samaria, he had been in the southern part of Israel, Judea, Jerusalem, and you remember what had happened there. The people believed, but it was a very shallow belief. They believed that he was a miracle worker. That's what they believed. They believed he was an impressive individual. He could do some amazing things. That was the, that was the depth of their faith in Jesus. And it was not saving faith. They believed he was an impressive person with some great things to say and a lot of power. And that was the extent of their faith. That was it. He comes to Samaria, a place where none of the Jews wanted to go, and a whole town believes on it. And that brings us to where we're going in our passage this morning at the end of chapter 4. He continues north after two days in Sychar in Samaria. He heads back up to Cana. Remember the miracle of the turning the water into wine? He heads back to Cana, that same location, and he's going to do another miracle without ever going to the place where he was needed. Let's pray together. And we'll read the passage. Dear Heavenly Father, help us, I pray, as we look at your word this morning. May you be glorified and honored as we ponder your word. Father, how we receive, how we respond to your truth, to you who are truth. Father, may we respond not like the people in Jerusalem with a shallow faith, or even not like the Galileans for the most part, but more like the people in Samaria and more like this desperate father we're going to look at here this morning, who had heard Jesus was a miracle worker, who heard Jesus' words, but ultimately who believed upon him. May we be like him, this man. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look at our text, John chapter 4, and I'm going to read beginning in verse number 43. It says in John 4 and verse 43, Now after two days he departed thence and went into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. 
Then when he was come into Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. So they kind of received him the same way the people in Jerusalem had received him. Verse 46, So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now, in Israel, they pronounce, we pronounce it Capernaum. In Israel, they pronounce it Capernaum, okay? So if I say it that way, bear with me, all right? But this man has a son who's very sick. He's deathly ill in Capernaum. Verse 47, when he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. That's not the response we might expect Jesus to have to a desperate father, is it? A man comes to Jesus with a son who's dying. He's walked uphill from Capernaum to Cana, and it is an uphill walk. Um, it's about 20 miles. And he's heard about Jesus that he can heal people, and he's got a son nigh into death, and he walks, he makes this trek from Capernaum to Cana, and he gets there, and he says, would you come heal my son? And Jesus says, you won't believe, you're like everybody else. You'll only believe if I do something flashy for you. It's not what we would expect Jesus to say, but we'll, we'll ponder that a little bit later on. Verse 49 The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, and that's an amazing word, that word sir. We'll look at that. Come down, ere my child die. And Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. So now he's going downhill, back to his home. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he had begun to amend, and they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, which would be about one o'clock, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed, and his whole house. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Look again at verse 43, okay? And and I want to walk through this together. In verse 43, he's spent a couple of days, you remember, in Samaria. In verse 43, it says, Now after two days, he departed thence and went into Galilee. So after spending uh, two days in that city of Sychar in Samaria, Jesus now continues his journey north um, into Galilee. If you have your Bible, and you don't have to look now, but there are maps in the back of most of our Bibles, I would encourage you from time to time to look there. When you're reading your Bible and you read where about Judea, or you read about uh, Samaria, or you read about Galilee, you can look back into the map in your Bible, and you can actually see, okay, Jesus was here in southern Israel in Jerusalem. Now he goes north into Samaria. Sychar may or may not be on your map. And then you can go further north, and he was in Cana. And now we're talking about, we have this man from uh, Capernaum, and where is that in relation to Cana? And you can kind of visualize, and you can see some of the topography where Jesus would have been walking and teaching and doing miracles. So I encourage you to use your Bibles that way. 
But Jesus noted, and it says in verse 44 here, that Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. He, that's also mentioned in the other Gospels as well, in Matthew and Mark and Luke, that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. And so in, in the southern kingdom, Judea, the people really didn't value him very much. In Samaria, they did. They did. And now back up in Galilee, where Nazareth would be in Galilee, his birthplace in Bethlehem would have been in the southern kingdom, Judea, not far from Jerusalem. So Jesus says, a prophet hath no, no honor in his own country. You, 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 and you remember earlier on in John, he says, uh, John records, he came unto his own and his own received him not. And, and I think to some degree that is still true today. He, he, so he's returning to this spiritually lukewarm region where he had grown up. And I don't believe Jesus expected the same reception he had received in Samaria. And so he's saying, the prophet hath no honor in his own country. Now remember, people of Galilee had also been at Jerusalem during the feast of the Passover. And they had seen the miracles that Jesus had done in Jerusalem. It says so in verse 45. Then when he was coming to Galilee, the Galileans received him. We would say that's a positive thing, don't you think? Having, but notice, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast. For they also went unto the feast. So why did they receive him? They received him because they were impressed with his miracles, his capabilities. And a great question for us this morning is, why do you worship the Lord Jesus Christ? Why do you claim to follow him? Why, and here's the good question, why do you believe in Jesus? You believe in him because of impressive events? You believe in him because of goosebump scenarios and experiences in your life? Um, we're all about, in our society, creating those kinds of atmospheres. The world, the world lives for creating those kinds of atmospheres, goosebump scenarios, experiences. That's what, I mean, you can go to professional uh, athletic event, but if it's a blowout, it's kind of a dud. You paid, you didn't really get to see what you were looking You were looking for a, an overtime thriller. That's what you were looking for. You were looking for the whoa experience, right? That's what we love. We love those kind of experiences. It's one thing to hear someone uh, musically perform something or perform a piece, but you know what? If it's, if it's what, we, what really appeals to our flesh to a degree is the wow me, wow. Give me, make the, make, make, give me those little bumps. You know, make the, the hair on the back of my neck stand up. I want to experience that. That can be very fleshly, though, can it? In fact, there can be absolutely nothing spiritual about that kind of experience. And, and even with Jesus, back down in the southern part of Israel, doing miracles, people believed upon him because he did impressive things. Whoa, I can go home and talk to my wife. Honey, you should have seen it. it, was, it was, this guy was paralyzed, and he made him walk again. Wow. But their belief in him was shallow. It was not saving faith. So what kind of faith do you have in Jesus? You believe in him? What, what is the nature of your faith? And that is really what John is getting after in this passage. So, in verse 45, the Galileans received him only because they had seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem. 
And it's interesting, and it's worth noting here, that the word received in verse 45 is a different Greek word than is used back in John chapter 1 in verse 12, where he says, But as many as have received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So there's a different quality of receiving Jesus. How are you receiving him? Are you receiving him only because of an experience that his name brings? Are you receiving him? Why why do you gather with the body of believers that we call, the Bible calls the body of Christ? Why do you gather? Why do you come to church? Why are you a part of Christianity? Why are you a Baptist, a member of a Baptist church? These are all good, great questions. Well, I was raised in this. You know, I was. I've been attending Baptist churches my whole life. Um, My parents had me in church pretty much every Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Is that why I'm continuing? Because I was raised that way? Is that why I'm bringing my children into this? Is it just a man's religion? Or do I know Jesus Christ as my personal Savior? Is he my Lord? Do I love him? Do I worship him? Do I want my children to know God Almighty in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and not just sitting on the right hand of the Father, but living inside of them and ruling and leading them in their lives? What is your measure of faith? So there's a difference here. The Galileans received him. Dekomai is the Greek word. And John says in chapter 1 and verse 12, But if you're going to receive him and be a child of God, he uses a different term. He makes a distinction. And so the reception of Christ by the Galileans was similar to the reception of the Jews back in Jerusalem. Look back to chapter 2. It's been so many weeks since we've looked at these things. I want it to be fresh in your mind. Look back to chapter 2 and verse 23. You remember when he was back in Jerusalem, it was the time of the Passover and in Chapter 2 and verse 23, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them. He did not believe in them because he knew all men. And needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. He knew what was in their hearts. Is it a good thing that Jesus does miracles? Is it yes or no? Yes, of course it is. It was a wonderful thing then. It was, uh, they, were, it was, they were signs and they were wonders. His miracles were signs and wonders so that people would be able to know. It was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, but it was a signs and wonders that, so that people would know there's something different, marvelously different about this man than any other man. So it was good then. Is it good today when Jesus does miracles in our lives? when he saves a soul, when he takes someone who is a slave to sin and he transforms that man's life, is that not a miracle? Remember our study of Ephesians, it it talks about how we were dead in our trespasses and how we were aliens from God by wicked works. And so when God saves a person, it's a miracle. And you know what? It's wonderful to be around that. It's wonderful. And I look out in this room and this room is full of miracles. It is. Miracles that are just as miraculous as the things that we read about in in the New Testament, in the Gospels. 
making a, a lame man walk again. And, or a man who's never walked before walk for the first time. Stand up. Take up your bed. What? <laughs> Why would he even think he could do that? Or Lazarus, come forth. Talking to a dead man. So that's the Jesus, and we marvel at him. And even to this day, when we look around, and if we're honest with ourselves and in tune with reality and the truth of the word of God at all, we can look around in this room and we can say, wow, a miracle, a miracle, a miracle. We can go all around this room, miracles all through this room. But is that the extent of your belief in Jesus because of the miracle that he's done in the person's life next to you or the person in front of you? Because you like to be around something that's happening. Because that's not enough for saving faith. These people back in chapter 2, and again the Galileans here in chapter 4, they were intrigued by Jesus' miracles. They were attracted to Jesus because of his miracles, but they evidently didn't receive him spiritually with a heart of repentance, turning away from their self-dependence to believe upon him completely. Their faith it was shallow. It was really no saving faith at all. Now, Jesus had only been in Judea a short time, but perhaps he had already sensed the hostility of the religious leaders toward himself. Of course, being God, he would have known their hearts. He would have known their hatred for him was already starting to gurgle and boil. The real opposition wouldn't appear for months. Our Lord, and this is interesting, our Lord was never identified with Judea, even though he had been born in Bethlehem. He's never called the prophet of Judea. He was known as the prophet from Galilee. Jesus knew that the response from the people of Jerusalem had been shallow and insincere, and, and the response of the Jews in Jerusalem to Jesus was not honoring to him at all, but Jesus' miracles in Cana and Jerusalem, it must have been impressive to the Galileans, and so much so it's recorded for us here. So what is your response to Jesus? That is the question. What is the level of your receptivity to Jesus Christ? What kind of faith do you have? Do you have a saving faith? I want to look at this man's faith in our text. Look at verse 46. Verse 46. And I notice, first of all, this man has an overwhelming crisis in his life. He has an overwhelming plight. And I'll ask you right up front, do you have an overwhelming crisis in your life? What's a crisis? What's a plight? Um... I, I, I suppose I might define a crisis or a plight as something that you cannot overcome without supernatural help. An impossible situation. Sometimes in our lives, we look at things in our lives and we look at them as impossible when they're not as impossible as they seem to us at the time. Have you ever been there? You're going through life, and especially those of us as we get older, we grow, and we look back and we go, wow, you know, I was really overwhelmed with that. That was overwhelming to me at that point in my life, but that was nothing <laughs> compared to what I'm dealing with now. Somebody mentioned our, our college students, this is finals week at some of the schools where they're studying. And you know what my thought was? I'd give anything to go back and go through finals week again. I'd be glad to trade this for that. You know, I mean, give me finals week, you know. Ooh, finals week. But you know what? To them, to them, there are some of them, they're sweating, they're dying. They're like, oh, Lord, please help me. I need help. 
Okay? And you know what? They should. God's growing them. And that's true for all of our lives. Uh, sometimes there are things in our lives, they seem overwhelming. And in the moment, they are. They are. We can't see our way through it. It's a crisis. It's a plight. And then maybe years later, we look back and go, you know what? That wasn't. But you know what? God uses those crises, those plights, to grow our faith in him. So when, as we grow older and we face bigger challenges, we know where to look. We know where to keep our eyes focused. Well, this man had a plight. Look at verse 46. What was his plight? Verse 46. So Jesus came again unto Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick of Capernaum. A certain nobleman. Uh, the, word, the word nobleman means a sovereign, actually, a ruler. It means, it literally means the king's man. It's interesting. He was from Capernaum, some 20 miles away, about 20 miles away. And there are a couple comments about this man that I think need to be mentioned. One is that this certain nobleman may have been an appointee of Herod Antipas. Now, Herod Antipas was the guy who ended up killing um, John the Baptist. You remember having his head severed and brought to him on a platter. So he was a wicked man. He was a godless man. And this certain nobleman may have been an appointee of Herod Antipas, who was the puppet king of the Jews. The Bible doesn't say whether this nobleman was a Jew or a Gentile, and it doesn't tell us how religious he was. I doubt he was religious at all. Either way, this nobleman probably was not an observant Jew. Instead, it is likely that this man would have been a Herodian, which most of the Jews hated, by the way. They were political operatives for these puppet kings that worked with the Roman Empire. And so he would have had little time for Jewish religious heritage, probably little time for mingling with the Jewish community, at least having, he would have had probably a bad reputation He wasn't encumbered with the religious traditions and the pride which so many of the Jews of that day were steeped. And by the way, religion often is a great obstacle to people trusting Jesus Christ alone. Don't ever put your faith and trust in the facilities or the the order of service, the way we do things. Your identity should never be wrapped up in, in, in formalities and I'm not and, and, and formality, by the way, isn't the problem. Or organization isn't the problem. But sometimes we put our faith and our confidence and our trust, our identity, in a form of religion, a form of godliness. That is not where our salvation lies. It's, our salvation is not found in a certain standard. It is found in Jesus Christ alone. There's something else that we could notice. We should note about this particular individual in this circumstance. It's interesting that God allowed a serious illness into this son's life, or this father's child, the life of this child, to get the spiritual the spiritual attention of this child's parent. God allowed a deathly illness into the life of a child to get the attention of a father. And I believe ultimately to save a whole house. And so I speak to all of us here this morning. God's ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. You know how we want it to work? 
and, and we, we we're going to read this and we're going to study it more this morning, but you know how we often want salvation and evangelism to work? We want it to work through a, uh, a service where it's a full group of people in the service and pastor preaches a good message, you know, as opposed to bad message. And, uh, uh, and, and then there's an invitation and, and people just flood down the aisle and get saved and and then they get baptized, and their lives are changed, you know, to a higher extent than ours have been changed. And that's how we want it to be. Or we want to go out and knock on a street of doors in Flushing, and, and everybody, every door we knock on, just they just believe, and it's, they're just ready. And, or we want to have certain ways of evangelizing. You know that God is in the business of evangelism? God Almighty chose to give this man's son a deathly illness. He brought this man to a point of crisis in his life. You know what? If we're honest with ourselves, many of us in this room would have to admit, you know what? For my salvation, God brought me to a point of crisis. He began to take things away from me that I had been putting my faith and my trust in. He began to take away my business. He began to take away my ability to make money. He began to take away maybe my health. Many of us in this room could say that. He began to give me over to my sinful heart and the lust of my flesh. And by the way, if God truly gave us over to the lust of our flesh, our flesh is so wicked and so vile that our own flesh would literally destroy our lives. That's how wicked it is. It's by his mercy that we're not consumed. And so God brought this crisis into this man's life. Would you choose to... And not that we have the power to do this, but would you choose to give a child a deathly illness to bring salvation to a father and a mom? Would you do that? I wouldn't do that. But you're not God, and I'm not God. This man, by the way, his heart was tender, and it was open because of and only because of the illness of his son. The Bible tells us in verse 47, this and in the latter part, look at verse 47, the latter part, it tells us that this, son, this man's son was grievously sick. It tells us this man's son was at the point of death, is what it tells us. So this father has a son who's at the point of death, and this father had heard about Jesus. He, he didn't believe, he wasn't a follower of Jesus, he wasn't a disciple of Jesus, he wasn't a faithful servant of Jesus, he wasn't doing the will of Jesus, but he had just heard about Jesus. He had heard what Jesus could do. All he, all he had. And he, so the father makes his journey all the way from Capernaum to Cana to intercede, to meet the one, the only one. And I imagine this man probably had some strings he could pull along the way to help his son. I don't know. The Bible doesn't get into that. But I imagine he had probably exhausted every possible option that he had to, to find health for his son. He'd probably done whatever he could to help his son. He was at the end of himself. He was in a crisis. So he comes to Cana to, to meet Jesus. I'm reminded that the first miracle in Cana was at the request of a mother, and now here we find a second miracle in Cana was at the request of a desperate father. And so I ask you, is there a, do you have a trial in your life? Are you at a point of crisis? You know, if we're honest, and by my definition of the word crisis, facing something which you yourself, in and of yourself, cannot overcome. To some degree, every single one of us in this room are at a point of crisis. 
some in this room, perhaps your crisis is you know that you're a sinner, you know that you're separate from God, you've done your dead level best to try to follow God and you find God and, and yet there's still something, there's this big hole inside of you that is not satisfied. And friend, only the Lord Jesus Christ can save your soul from death and hell. And he will, he'll forgive you, but you're going to have to believe in him alone. Alone. For, those, for many of us in this room, we are born again. There, there, there was that time of crisis in our lives when we believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ and he saved our souls from death and hell. But now the question might be for you and for me who are believers, as we ponder our lives, our marriages, our, our children, we ponder our relationships within the local church, the ministries that God has given to us, or the, 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 the ministries and opportunities to be a witness for Christ in the world in which we live, how do we look at it? Do we look at it as something that, hey, I got this, no big deal, I got this. I got my marriage, I got child uh, training, you know, no big deal there. My parents pulled it off, all right, so I'm sure I will figure it out too, no big deal. Are we casual? Or are we seeking the Lord? How about temptations in our lives? Are we casual about our temptations? Do we look at it and say, God, please, I need you to deliver me from this temptation. Do you have a plight? Are you honest with yourself this morning? Again, every one of us has a plight. The plight could be the grip of sin. The plight could be the old man. And he seems to be getting the upper hand in our lives. The, the plight could be a disease. It could be the marriage relationship. It could be understanding and wisdom for the career that you're endeavoring to have in your life. John 15 and verse 5, Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, without me, ye can do nothing. Ye can do nothing. You and I can do nothing in our lives, in and of ourselves, that will bring glory and praise to God Almighty, except the Lord Jesus Christ does it through us. Do you have a crisis? This nobleman understood that he had a tremendous need for Jesus. He needed Jesus to heal his son, to save the life of his son. Look at verse 47. I noticed, secondly, I noticed this nobleman had a prayer for Christ's presence. And he had a prayer, and he prays. He asked God to heal his son. Look at verse 47. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. Verse 49, the nobleman doubles down his prayer. He says unto him, Sir, come down ere my child die. In other words, he's saying, Jesus, if you don't come, if you don't intercede for me, my child's going to die. You see how his singleness of hope and faith was in Jesus Christ alone. He understood Jesus, if you don't come, if you don't heal my son, no one can. My son is going to die if you don't heal him. Now, this is a prayer. He, he, he makes the trek from uh, uh, Capernaum to Cana. He finds Jesus. He begins to talk to Jesus. He's praying. He's asking. He's pleading with Jesus. Would you please come and would you please heal my son? You know, prayer is a sign of humility. And I ask us all here this morning... Are you a humble person? And a great way to know if you're a humble person or not is to answer this question, do you pray or not? Are you a man of prayer? 
too many times in our lives, for those of us who have experienced the most wonderful answer to prayer ever, and that God saving our souls from death and hell, and giving us his righteousness. Many of us here have prayed that prayer and received the salvation of God, and yet many of us, having received that kind of an answer to prayer, go through our lives on a daily basis without praying. And I mean that. I don't think I'm overstating that. Many of us in this room go through our lives on a daily basis without praying outside of, God, thank you for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Many of us as men go off to the workplace and we engage in work and and our responsibilities and we don't ask God for wisdom. Lord, give, give me wisdom. Give me understanding. Not just for the task, but for the people, working with people that I'm working with on a daily basis. God, give me wisdom. Give me your wisdom so I know I can be your man and your witness in this place. Many of us try to to be evangelistic and win people to Christ without praying, without asking God for help. Many of us go through trying to train up our kids and we're doing a great job maybe presenting to them a man's religion, a form of religion. But we don't seek God daily for our children. We have four children. So... I suppose I should pray more because I have four children. If you have one child, you don't have to pray. You only pray for one child. But you know what? If you have any number of children, if you have more than one, you know they're very different. And what William, what what Ian may struggle with, Tori doesn't. But what Tori struggles with, Ian doesn't. They're different struggles. They're flesh. They all have wicked flesh, as we all have wicked flesh. But you know what? Flesh, our flesh... Is, our, is like our finger. It's like our fingerprints. It's that diverse. It's wicked. But what one man struggles with, another man doesn't struggle with. What that man struggles with, that man doesn't struggle with. What, 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 what mom, mom struggles with deeply, another mother doesn't struggle with. And one mother could look across the room and say, why does she struggle so much with that? Because our flesh is like designer specific to every single one of us. And if you have children, you ought to be praying. We ought to be pleading God. We ought to be asking God to help them and to give us wisdom and understanding to train them up. And how can I teach Olivia? How can I help her understand? Lord, would you please help? Because I have four children. This father comes and he's praying. Luke chapter 11 says, Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. 1 John 5 tells us this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us whatsoever we ask, we know, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. And so, am I praying according to God's will? This father was, he, this nobleman wasted no time, did he? As soon as he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, the Bible says there that he went unto him. Uphill. Are you seeking the Lord? I fear that we're too casual in our desire for God. I fear that we're too casual in our desire for God. In our pursuit of God. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, And ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. That's an Old Testament truth. God spoke to an adulterous, idolatrous 
nation. And he said, if you will seek with me with all of your heart, you'll find me. You'll find me. Are you seeking the Lord? Are you seeking the Lord Jesus Christ to make your marriage what it ought to be? James 4 and verse 8 says, Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. And you know, this father was absolutely humbling himself. I wonder what his thoughts were for 20 miles of walking from Capernaum to Cana. No, nobody comes to Jesus, the Bible tells us, unless, the God, uh, unless the fa- uh, the God the Father does the work in that person. In John 6 and verse 65, Jesus said, Therefore I said unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. So God gives us the ability to come to Jesus. Jesus invites us to come to him. In Matthew 19 and verse 14, Jesus said, Suffer little children and forbid them not to come unto me. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 7 and verse 37, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Are you thirsty? Matthew 11 and verse 28, Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Some of us in this room, if we're honest with ourselves, would say, I am in desperate need of rest. I just need a break. I'm so tired. need rest. But you know what? You can go on vacation and not find rest. You can quit the job and not find rest. You can eliminate the circumstance and not find rest. You see, rest is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you're going to have to seek him. You're going to have to seek him. And know in the depths of your heart that this tumultuous situation, this trial in life where you may find yourself, my rest is found in Christ. Some of us are so miserable because we're warring against him. We're so angry. And you say, my problem is with that individual, or my problem is with those individuals, or my problem is with this circumstance, my problem is with the disease. No, my problem is with God. He's allowed these things into my life. And I'm fighting him. I'm resisting him. I'm angry with him because he's allowed this into my life. Some of us are so tired, we're actually the fighting, we're fighting the one that could actually give us the rest. You know, this, this morning, I hope you take some time to maybe get on your knees with the Lord and just pray and say, Lord, all to you I surrender. Lord, I accept what you've brought into my life. And I'm going to thank you for it, though I don't understand and I can't explain. And I, Lord, but thank you for what you're doing in my life. And Father, I am looking to you to strengthen me and to hold me up and to see me through this time in my life and grow me to be what you want me to be. Are you coming to Christ? What, what moves a man from a philosophical view of Jesus? Uh, what I mean by that is he's a good teacher, he's a good person, he did a lot of miracles, wow, an amazing individual. What, what moves a man from a philosophical view of Jesus to a sincere confidence in Jesus as the Christ? 
that he alone can save, that he alone is able? And the answer to that question is desperation, a crisis. In Matthew 9, Jesus said that people who aren't sick don't look for a doctor. Some of us in this room are sick, and you don't look for a doctor. Don't make me go. I don't want them poking. So humiliating. So we think we just ignore it. It'll just go away. Does that work? Not normally. And so God brings these crises into our lives to draw us to himself because he wants to reveal himself as God, the one who is able, the one who can deliver. It was desperation that drove this royal official who may have been serving under that hated Herod to come to Jesus and beg to give life to his son. This nobleman, the Bible says, went to him. He went unto him to plead with Jesus, come and heal my dying son. Look at verse 47. He says, and heal, he, he says, come down and heal. He says, I want you to come down and heal my son. For, why? Because his son was at the point of death. He was desperate. I want you to notice how Jesus received the man. Did Jesus shed some tears for this brokenhearted father? No. I don't see a whole lot of compassion outwardly, though we know Jesus is compassionate. But he didn't. He didn't shed any tears. He didn't hug this father who's overwhelmed and tired from his journey. He didn't comfort the father even. (laughs) Jesus looked at this desperate, broken-hearted father. He ignored his request. Would you please come to Capernaum and would you please heal my son? Jesus ignores his request and instead he challenges this father's faith. He brings up a theological discussion about whether what kind of faith you have. That's not how we would handle this. That's not how I would handle this. Someone comes in brokenhearted about a matter, and I don't, my first question is, well, what about your faith? Look at verse 48. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. Ye, by the way, means y'all. That's what it means. It's a great word. He doesn't say, except you see signs and wonders. That would be precise to an individual. He says, except ye. And he wasn't just talking to that man, though he was talking to that man. He's talking to the Galileans that are around him. See, they have the same problem that the people in Jerusalem had. You won't believe except you see a miracle. You won't take me at my word. And so Jesus is talking to the bystanders as well. And really, Jesus placed a test in front of this father to see just how serious he was. Jesus knew what was going to happen, but he wanted the father to digest, to comprehend, to to ponder these things. And so Jesus highlights the fact that so many of Israel would not believe unless they first saw signs and wonders. And yet, this father, and I'm so thankful for this, this father was undeterred. He was undeterred. And there's an urgency in his request. He says, come down ere my child die. You see him say that in verse number 49. And by the way, the word son, back up in verse 47, is a different word from the word child in verse 49. The word child in verse 49 has the idea of a little child. 
little child. And the father is emphasizing the helplessness of his little son. I don't know how old the, uh, the little fellow was, but my question to you is, what, what kind of faith do you have? Does your faith constantly need to be built up by amazing acts of God? We love to see those things. Lord, show me a miracle. Do the, do the wow. That's what I want to see. You're the God of the wow, and he is to a degree. He can do anything. He created the heavens and the earth. He can raise people from the dead. He can make the lame to walk again, right? He's the God of that impossible, and we want to see him as that. But you know, he's also the God of the impossible, that he's, he's growing our faith intimately from within us by his Holy Spirit and his word, those words chosen by him and preserved by him for you and for me, a record of him working in this world with us in mind. He has given it to us so that he will grow our faith in him. Are we willing to let him work this way? What kind of faith do you have? Is your faith dependent upon good health? And if good health doesn't come, you're going to be an angry, bitter, resentful person? Is your faith in Jesus, in the Lord Jesus Christ, dependent upon a pay raise at work or good times, like the faith of those in Jerusalem and Galilee? Or is your faith like that of the Samaritans who just believed upon Jesus Christ because of what he said? Look at verse 50. I notice his path, this father's pathway of faith. Look at verse 50. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. Now, wait a minute. The father had come and said, I need you to come and heal my son. And Jesus said, You need signs and wonders. You all need signs and wonders, or you won't believe at all. The father doubles down. He says, Would you please? He says, Sir, would you please come and heal my little child? And Jesus responds to that faith. He says, go thy way. Your son's healed. Now, if the father needed to see signs and wonders, would he have gone his way? No. He believed the word of Jesus Christ. He believed the words of Jesus Christ. And there are times in our lives we're going along through life and the situation looks absolutely impossible. And it looked like that for this father. He had left his son dying at home in Capernaum. He stands before the one who can heal him. He gets his faith questioned. And he says, but he's confident this is the man who can heal his son. And when, and when Jesus responds, go thy way, uh, he liveth. He believed him. He believed him. Now, from that man's perspective, the Bible doesn't say he, he checked his Facebook account to see if the status of his son had been updated. Oh, yes, he has been healed. Thank you, Jesus. And then he went his way. He didn't text home and say, how's he doing? Has the fever broken? Is he doing better? He didn't, there was none of that. There was nothing. All he had to depend upon, all he had for verification that his son was alive and doing well was the word of Jesus Christ. And you know, frankly, if we're honest with ourselves, that's all we have too. And so faith is taking him at his word. This man believed what Jesus said, and he acted upon Jesus' words. I'm, I've so enjoyed Sunday school. Uh, Josh, I appreciate all the effort and work you put in. And uh, Sunday school teachers here, I appreciate the effort and work you put in studying the word of God and teaching it. 
just teaching the Word of God. It's so, it's so powerful. It's so amazing. We don't, we don't have to liven it. Just let it speak. And this morning, as Josh was teaching, we finished our study in Psalm 119. And in verse 161, it's a long psalm. It's longer than that, but in verse 161, it says, My heart standeth in awe of thy word. God spoke. Jesus spoke to this man, and he believed what Jesus said. Go thy way. Would you have obeyed Jesus that day? Would you have obeyed his words that day when he said to you, I know your son's dying, but he liveth now. Go your way. Would you have believed him? Or would you have stayed and questioned him and said, I don't understand why you won't come. Don't you understand that my son's dying and if you don't come, you see that the unbelief in that, that there would have been? Jesus said, he liveth, go your way, go home. And he does. But I asked myself the question, Seth, what, what would you have done, Seth? Would you have gone your way? Would you have just kept going on in life like everything was going to be okay? Would, Seth, would you have trusted Christ? Or would you have worried and, and, and wrung your hands as you, with a pouty face and an angry look, walked back down the hill to expecting my son's probably dead by now, or he's going to be dead because that guy wouldn't intercede the way he needed to intercede. And I'm talking about our situations in life. I hope you're making that connection. We have a hope. We have an assurance. We have the word of God. Look, look, there, look there where he says, Sir, thy son liveth. I think it's back up in verse 49. You know the word sir there? It's capitalized. You see it there. You know that the word sir is the Greek word kurios? Why do they translate it sir? I don't know. Can anybody define for me curios? Lord. Capital L O R D. Lord. Curios. It means supreme authority of heaven and earth. This dad looked at him and he said, Sir, come down ere my child, my little baby, die. He looked at him and said, You're the supreme authority of heaven and earth. Would you please come? He knew who he was. He knew who he was. Our Jesus is not dead. He sits on the right hand of the Father. He lives within us. He is going to rule and reign for all of eternity. We are not alone. All is not lost. And even when you and I fail and we stumble and we fall and sin in this life and temptation seems to get the better of us, or when death comes to our homes or disease comes to our homes, or heartache and heartbreak, or we're looking at the trials of this life, and we're just overwhelmed with it. We are not alone. We serve a risen Savior, and He is the Lord. He is the Lord, and this was the pathway of faith for this Father. Go thy way. So he leaves. I don't know if I would have done it after leaving my small, frail little boy at home with a grieving wife to take the chance on finding Jesus, just hoping that, that what I've heard about him is true, that he can save my son. And yet this nobleman's only interacted with Jesus for a few minutes. It's not a long conversation here. And Jesus says, go thy way, thy son liveth. And in fact, Jesus was saying, all right, let's see if you really believe without seeing. You want me to come down to Capernaum? In essence, Jesus was saying, well, I'm not coming. I'm not going to come. 
It wasn't necessary for Jesus to come. It wasn't necessary for Jesus to be present in order to heal a sick little boy who was close to death. Jesus was saying, I'll stay here and I'll heal your son. You go on home, your son lives. I've commanded death to leave him. And he can do that. And friends, the Lord doesn't need to be physically present to act on our behalf. Distance is no obstacle for him. The pathway of faith is simple. Take God at his word. But the path of faith is not straight, and it is not easy. Do you believe the words of Christ? Do you believe them? Look at verse 51. Notice the proof that Jesus was worthy of his trust. Verse 51. As he was now going down, his servants met him. So they left Capernaum where the sick boy was, and they began to run uphill to the nobleman, the father. The father was now heading downhill 20 miles or so. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Some of us need to just step out in obedience to the word of God and say, I'm going to go home to Capernaum. I'm going to do what I know to be right. And how do we know what's right to do? I'm going to do what he's told me to do. That's how you know. I'm going to do what he's told me to do. And you know what? This doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Except Jesus Christ, the Lord, has told me to do it. And I'm going to do it. And as he was going, his servants come and meet him and say, they actually say the same words that Jesus said to the man. He said, go home, your son liveth. And they run up to him and say, your son liveth. Wow. Some of us here are burdened for some loved ones who are unsaved and we're wringing our hands and how we can figure out how we can finagle them into the kingdom of God. You know what we need to do? We need to make sure we're doing what Christ says. That's what we need to do. And you know what? Let's let Christ do the rest. So it's proof. There's proof here that that Jesus was worthy of his trust. I wonder if his heart skipped a beat when he saw his servants running toward him. I, I wonder if he stopped in his tracks. I wonder if there was a moment of doubt in his soul. How would you have responded when you saw the servants running your way? Would you have thought, oh no, he's dead? Or would you have looked at them and thought, he's alive? I don't know what level of faith the nobleman had. Did he tell them first, my son's alive? Or did they tell him first? It seems to say that they told him first. Verse 52, look there as we finish up. Then inquired he of them. This is interesting. This is the analytical minds that have been around for a long time. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. He wanted to know what time his son began to be okay. And they said unto him, yesterday at the seventh hour, about one o'clock, the fever left him. And so the father knew that it was at the same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth. And himself believed. And his whole house. Now there's a progression here that we see in this passage. He went to Jesus because he believed Jesus could do miracles. But that wasn't saving faith. He took God at his word. He took Jesus at his word and he went home believing that Jesus could heal a son and had healed his son. That's faith, but it wasn't saving faith. He believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ and was saved when he knew that Jesus Christ was God. He knew it. There was no doubt in his mind. 
And you know, some of us here, I think maybe you're at the point of the miracle. You, 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 you look around and you marvel. You come to church and you're like, wow, this is a miracle. I, heard, I hear about this person over here and wow, God's changing their life. That is, that is impressive. But you know what? You're not saved yourself. You like to hear about what Jesus can do in the lives of others. But he hasn't done it in your life. Or maybe you hear his word and you think, wow, that is true. That is true. I believe that. That's a true statement. Wow, the word of God, i got to give it to you, there's a lot of wisdom in it, you might say. There's truth in it. But it's not saving faith for you. Do you see the progression? Do you see the progression? It wasn't until he heard that his son was alive that he himself believed. And again, you could say, well, it, he already believed, right? He was a, no, he, was a, he believed Jesus was a miracle worker. He believed Jesus was a truth teller. But now he believed in the person of Jesus Christ. He believed that Jesus was God. At the beginning of chapter 4, and I'll close with this, at the beginning of chapter 4, we saw an entire village of hated Samaritans saved. And at the end of chapter 4, we see an entire family, very likely Gentiles, but possibly Jews, saved. An entire house. Husband, wife, children, possibly servants, saved. And this chapter reminds me that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And my question to you is, is he your Savior? Or are you one of the people, one of the many people in Israel during Jesus' lifetime who came and ate the bread that he, that he fed the thousands with and saw him do miracles and went home and thought, wow, that was really impressive. But they were not true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Have you believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul? I'm going to ask you, if you would, to stand. Heads bowed and eyes closed, please, if you'd please stand. How many of you would say with a lifted hand, Pastor Ferguson, I know that Jesus Christ is my Savior because I have believed upon him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he alone can save. Pastor Ferguson, you can rejoice with me because he has saved my soul. If that's you, would you raise your hand good and high that I can see it? Many, many hands. Let me put them down. Is there anyone here who would say, Pastor Ferguson, I have observed his miracles in the lives of others. I have heard his words and been impressed by them. But I have never believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ to save my soul from death and hell. Pastor Ferguson, today I, I want to do that. If that's you, would you raise your hand that I could see it in this room? Anyone like that at all? To believers, then I speak for just a moment. Where are you at in believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in him in your circumstance? Are you looking to him for guidance and direction? Are you trusting in him? Or are you overwhelmed in your spirit, vexed and angry and growing bitter because he's not willing to come back to Capernaum where you think he needs to be? Won't you just take him at his word? I want you to take your hymnals, if you would, and I want you to turn with me to hymn number 386. 386. And I want to sing... I want to sing a hymn. We're going to sing stanzas one and two. And then we're going to sing another hymn. 
You're going to have enough. You're going to have enough time. We're not going to take a lot of time. We're going to have we're going to have enough time, about five minutes. And I would encourage you to do this. Maybe some of you need to sl- slip out from your seat and come and kneel at the front. You have a crisis in your life. I'm not asking you to walk uphill to Cana. You don't even have to walk to the front. But I am asking you, before you leave this room, to get on your knees and to say, God, sir, Lord, would you please heal my little child? Would you please heal my marriage? Would you please heal my family? Lord, would you please heal me? I am broken. I'm coming apart. Would you pray that way? So you're going to have time. Let's take our hymnals, 386. Without him, I can do nothing. Let's sing it, verses 1 and 2. And we're going to go to hymn number 138. I'm not going to leave. You come if you'd like. Let's sing it out. <laughs>